Welcome to the show, everybody. I actually bumped the episode we are going to air until next week because I have a special gift-giving marketing psychology episode for you that is very timely, just in time for the holiday shopping Thought it would be fantastic, really interesting episode, and you might be asking, what am I thankful for? Well, guys, it is the fifth year anniversary of the Here We Are podcast. At the day I'm recording this, a few days before this is being uploaded and you're hearing it, I am celebrating five years of the show. It is amazing that I've been doing this for five years now. I've interviewed over 150 scientists. It's been quite an adventure, and I am so thankful to have so many listeners that are interested in this stuff that I find absolutely fascinating, you know, and I I have uh, really no business hosting a science podcast. It's strange to find myself doing this. I I just wanted to be a comedian my whole life. I never paid attention in school. I wasn't that big of a reader when I did start comedy. and But when I was reading, I was always reading science books. I was always watching things like TED Talks. And I was uh, when online classes started happening, I'd check those out in various lectures. And I just became more and more obsessed with science. And I had caught some breaks in my career and and been fortunate as a stand-up, but I I also had a yearning to be talking about bigger ideas, and science was where I found a lot of really satisfying answers, and more importantly, I was able to ask even bigger questions about life, and I started reaching out to academics some, I don't know, seven, eight years ago or something like that, got to become friends with some academics, like my first guest, Marty Hazelton, and my good friend Peter McGraw, who's been on the show a couple times, and they were really encouraging, and I just had these fantastic conversations with all these academics. I I just thought that these conversations needed to be recorded, and someone should be doing it, and so I was like, I, I can make that happen. Why not? You guys that know me know I'm I'm a bit of a thrill seeker. I'm a bit of an adventurer, and this is one of the biggest adventures I've ever been on. It's scary. I get nervous every time for one of these podcasts. I I never feel uh, ready enough or uh, capable enough um, because I, I didn't read enough as a kid. I'm insecure about finding the right words for things, and it's just a thrill to do it and move out of my comfort zone and keep pushing things forward and I've learned so much as I hope you guys have as well and I get such lovely emails and notes from you guys all the time and you come out to shows and tell me how much you appreciate the show and I appreciate you guys so thank you for listening and and sharing and reviewing and all those things that you do to help me out and help spread the word and help get more listeners, including, I know a lot of scientists that get emails from you guys after doing shows, and that's really encouraging for them. And there's academics that listen to this that have partnered with other academics that they've heard on the show. 
So we've we've made things happen together. We've made new research happen together that wouldn't have happened otherwise. And this is just a really special thing. And thanks to uh, the guy who helped me launch it, Ramin Nazer, did some of the early artwork and editing and, and has given me all sorts of wonderful advice and wisdom through the years. Jimmy Fro now edits the podcast because he is a stickler for detail and quality and spends a crazy amount of time making sure these podcasts sound perfect for you guys. Mike Kaplan and Zach Sherwin, best song in podcasting. Who's going to argue with that? And my fantastic art, which I conceptualized um, after a DMT trip, by the way, was done by the amazing visionary artist Topher Sipes, who will be joining me at Head Talks in Austin, coming up right around the corner. And tickets are already starting to move for Head Talks. I got that exciting project. Stand Up Science has been going strong. I I've now had almost 200 scientists on Stand Up Science this year. We're aiming for more in 2020. It's a lot of work. It's exhausting. It's fun. It's rewarding. And I I just can't get enough of this. Even on the even when I'm having a bad day and I don't want to get out of bed or do anything, uh, having to be forced to get up and go to an interview that I had already scheduled or uh, do a stand-up science show or something like that. It always brings me to life. I'm always so grateful for it afterwards. Sometimes it's a lot like exercise where I dread doing it, and then afterwards I'm just so happy that I've done it. And I am so happy that I've done five years of this show, hoping there's going to be a lot more in the future. We're trying to add a bunch of new things, like starting to use Instagram and put highlights of the show up on that to get more listeners and and some things like that to uh, work starting to work with some different universities and collaborate with people lots of exciting stuff to come especially since stand-up science has been taking off things seem like they're clicking into place a bit it's never as fast as you want it's never exactly the ideal version of of how you might uh, picture it when you're first coming up with the ideas, but that's when some of the magic happens as well. I would have never pictured doing a science podcast when I started my comedy career, and now it's the my favorite thing that I do. I, I wish I just did this podcast full-time. That's how much I love doing it. And so thank you guys so much for all your support and Please continue to listen, please continue to share, and have a great holiday season. Are we? Yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast, doing another fun episode in Boston. I'm talking with Assistant Professor of Marketing at the Damore McKim School of Business at Northeastern University. Please welcome Mary Steffel, everybody. Yay, Mary. Thank you. 
Thank you for joining me. Thanks for being on Stand Up Science. You were fantastic. And listeners, by the way, many of you obviously didn't get a chance to be in Boston and see Mary on Stand Up Science. She has a fantastic uh, TEDx talk that you can Google and check out and kind of hear some of uh, some of what she talked about on the show. Um, and today, I thought we'd do a little special kind of timely episode. We won't talk about this the whole time, but it's at least a, a good place to start. The holidays are approaching. Uh, Thanksgiving right around the corner. And it, do you do you do the like... The Black Friday, the online deals. Do you deal deal with all that? We joke about it in my family, but we don't actually camp out and and do the whole Black Friday thing. We kind of wait until everybody's gotten their their fill and then kind of make it out to the stores once they've cleared out a little bit. I mean, there must be some other... I mean, it must just be exciting for people to be a part of the experience because, I mean, what are you saving a hundred dollars or something like that. Like to me, that's not, I mean, that's just, if you're factoring in what like your hourly wages or something like that, it doesn't seem like you're saving enough money to be camping out. Uh, am I wrong in this assessment? <laughs> I think for some people, it's just the shopping is half the fun and the ritual of it all. Um, you know, and, and putting that time and energy and thought into all of it, I think is part of what makes people feel like they've been a good gift giver. Mm. And uh, you mentioned on Stand Up Science, uh, one common mistake a few common mistakes people make when giving gifts, and uh, it was I, I had never heard of such a thing before. The though I I especially liked the buying the same gift for everyone. Can you talk about that? Absolutely. So um, one thing that happens when we do our holiday shopping and have a long list of people to shop for at the same time is that we often end up uh, passing up gifts that we know would be better liked by everyone on our shopping list in favor of something that's unique and different for each person. So even if I know each of you might like this one thing the best, um, you know, a, a lifetime subscription to Stand Up Science, um, <laughs> then... Uh, Available now at shanemoss.com. <laughs> Yeah, I might pass that up in favor of, you know, getting something different and unique for, you know, someone else on my shopping list. So, you know, I feel like a thoughtful giver in treating each person as, as unique and special. Uh, and so... This happens when people are trying especially hard to be thoughtful. Uh, it makes a person feel more thoughtful to treat everyone unique and uh, different. Uh, and yet it leads us astray in many cases. So uh, it makes it more likely that we are going to pass up those better liked gifts for our closer friends than those that we might care a little less about making sure that it's exactly right. Uh, again, because we feel this pressure to impress those we really care about and show them how much we know and understand, you know, what makes them special and different from everyone else, even if they're never going to compare gifts with somebody else on our shopping list. And it means that when we try extra hard to put that extra time and thought into it, we end up overthinking it and being extra prone to passing up those gifts. So you're actually better off not overthinking it, trying to go with your gut and pick the thing that comes first to mind because that's more likely to be the thing that that person really wanted. Hmm. I, uh, so there, there's also a put, uh, that puts a lot of pressure. I feel gifts sometimes put the pressure on the receiver as well when someone's clearly like put a lot of thought into it and then you're like, oh yeah, of course, like, 
a, a snake ladle. Like, <laughs> and they're, they're like, remember? Because you love snakes. I'm like, oh, I had a snake when I was six. <laughs> yeah, that's a thing. Absolutely. And that was very thoughtful. It, but now they're like coming over to your house and you're like, uh, you're pulling the, uh, the snake ladle uh, out of your uh, out of your storage box so that when <laughs> and you're just ladling soup around like this is just <laughs> like every you do that day every of your time, life. You know, yeah. it's like your every night ritual. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, just get so much use out of this thing. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I mean, I think part of what makes gifts socially connecting is that reaction from the recipient. Uh, is that sense in which you feel like you, as a giver you have impressed them or made them smile, and and so as a recipient you want to give that message whether or not you actually liked the gift in the first place hmm. i mean do we need to do gifts i i, I, mean, do we, I, I, I don't know i guess it's it, for me it's just it, it's a hard it, i like when i'm in a relationship i i like the excuses to buy gifts for someone i i find the family gather and then especially like work gatherings and stuff where you where you have to like bring a little something that's just a nightmare <laughs> Uh, situation for me and it's only like two times it's like people's birthday and then christmas that's about it but i feel like i I feel like uh if we don't need it all the rest of the time (laughs) we need it at all i I don't know are you do you get uh, do you wake up christmas morning excited (laughs) still as an adult it to me it just it still feels like it's something like for the kids yeah yeah i I still get excited uh, yeah. in these moments. I, uh, I'm just a jerk, I guess. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a big Grinch. But a lot of those, uh, a lot of traditional economists might sort of question this practice of giving people gifts and trying to guess what the other person's preferences are. Um, there's an economist uh, by the name of Wald Fogel who uh, has been accused of being a bit of a Grinch himself because he has this idea that... Uh, there's this dead weight loss in gift giving where inevitably the gift that a giver decides to give the recipient is valued, you know, about 10% less than what they actually spent on it. And so, you know, there's a lot of economists that might say we're better off just giving someone cash so they can go out and get whatever it is they truly want. Yeah. So it actually inspired a project. So one of the things I wanted to look at is, oh, why do we bother to constrain gifts Uh, such that they have a more narrow use, right? So I could give you a Visa gift card that you could spend anywhere on anything, or I could, you know, even staying in the gift card realm, I could give you another gift card, but this time maybe make it to your favorite restaurant, your favorite store. You know, by constraining it, I feel like I've been, again, a more thoughtful giver because I've signaled something about you, I've I've tailored it to who you are, um, and I think that's going to be more socially connecting. But in fact, actually, I'm overestimating how important that is to you as a recipient. In fact, as a recipient, you might actually prefer a little bit more flexibility that, you know, you might actually be able to go out and get whatever you want or need right now. Uh, So, you know, like, Maybe you need cookie cutters and shapes other than cats right mm-hmm. now. So, you know, even if I give you that kind of perfectly tailored gift that, you know, really hits the bullseye of what I know that you love, it still may not satisfy whatever it is that you're craving in that particular moment. Yeah. I mean, you you live in Boston where, you know, this isn't this isn't the Midwest where where you can uh buy like in Indianapolis a 
four bedroom house for a hundred thousand dollars <laughs> or whatever. There's, there's only, I lived in Boston for yeah, six yeah. years in, in this, uh, like but blocks away from here. And you know, there's only so much, uh, stuff you can fit it. I, now I basically, uh, everything that I own is in my vehicle. And so Absolutely. I'm hard to buy for like uh, people need to, and now people are jumping through hoops to be like, Oh, there's this new like device for your, <laughs> For your car visor or something to to shield the sun in a different way than I'm I'm now making up new products that I imagine exist, but um uh, but it, it's like I kind of at a certain point be like, uh, can you just say like, hey, good to see you, happy holidays, and like I actually don't. <laughs> right, need anything. right. I feel like such a monster saying all of this. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I'm totally with you on that, right? You know, I, I hardly have room for the family size toilet paper like roll in my right. apartment, let alone like all these single use appliances, right? So, you know, like they make you know, blenders for smoothies, but then they also make you know the margarita machine that's specifically geared toward that, or you know the the food chopper processor, you know, you probably could have one device that does all of those things. And for most of us actually might prefer that, you know, versatility. But you know, again, it, it doesn't quite feel as, as special if you could use it for anything that if it's just for that one thing that I know you really love. Yeah, I had a I had a mini pot pie maker. Uh, for, <laughs> That's awesome. for a while, which, I mean, I do love pot pies. And <laughs> small little pie i mean it was it was actually pretty great but <laughs> but the idea that there's like so many you know every kitchen gadget store now is and that's that's i feel like that's a lot of i feel like those stores just crush it during <laughs> during the holidays oh, totally. but it's always such kind of ridiculous one time use stuff and why is it so why does it feel so like dirty to give someone cash I think, yeah, it it's feels like just not thoughtful. crass. It feels thoughtless. Um, I think like here, like you're throwing it in their face. <laughs> Here's some money. Happy holidays. It, right? it has yeah. like that vibe to it. It definitely doesn't have that sense of of signal value where I can show you that I know something about you that I've I've and I've thought about that thing and you know, use that to pick something that's perfect for you. I mean, I think that's actually an important thing in the back of a lot of people's minds when they're picking out gifts is, can I use this gift to signal, you know, how much I know about this other person, how much I care about this other person? And and cash doesn't have that capability of showing that I've put a lot of thought or effort into this, right? You know, I could have put a lot of thought and effort into this and decided cash was really what you wanted, uh, or I could have put three seconds of time into that. And and so I think that's important. And, and again, it's that signaling motive that I think often will lead givers to choose things that really deviate from what the recipient might have really wanted if you just asked them. You know, so oftentimes, you know, give our recipients will put together a registry. These are the things that I actually want and mm -hmm. will actually use. And it's the people that are closest to us that actually are most likely to go off registry and get us the junk that we didn't actually want because it enables, it's the only way that they can show that they actually put some thought into it and came up with something themselves. <laughs> they see the registry. Oh, yeah. They know it's there. They're one of the few people that knows about it probably <laughs> and then they don't go for it anyway yeah i mean i'm i'm tough to buy like i'll take a cool shirt but good luck finding a shirt cooler than the shirts that i already have i have lots of cool shirts as you can yeah, see yeah. i have a i'm wearing a cuttlefish spaceship shirt right now <laughs> i mean you're not gonna find a better shirt than that to give me um <laughs>
Here's what I think that people should do for the holidays. Have more parties, more <laughs> gatherings. Put your money into that. Like I like I like buying people uh, meals and stuff. Take some people out. Hey, tonight's on me. That's the sort of thing I'd rather do than get someone a gift. Or you go to someone's Christmas party and they're like, wow, you got a juggler for some reason. Why'd you do that? Who knows? But you you really went all out on this party. Those Those to me seem like it would stick in someone's mind a little more than like the material things, like the experiential kind of gifts or activities. Absolutely. And there's research to back that up. So we do... Uh, get more long-lasting pleasure out of experiences than material items. And so, you know, there there is evidence to suggest that those things are going to bring us longer-lasting happiness. Uh, they're also more socially connecting. So even, so one aspect of that is that we often will go experiencing that dinner or experiencing that comedy night together. Mm-hmm. Um, so that makes it socially connecting. But even if, you know, I get you a gift card to go get a massage and, and, and relax on on your own, um, it's still going to be more socially connecting than if I gave you, you know, like um, a more material item, you know, like the take home spa, you know, back scratcher kind of thing. Uh, yeah. And so, yeah, there's something about those experiences that really are more unique and special and, and you know, really forge uh, a connection between the giver and the recipient. Yeah. I mean, how hard you get someone a spa treatment. It's a Age-old, surefire gift <laughs> that anyone <laughs> enjoys. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's... Uh, so, what... I, I mean, first off, how do you test something like someone's um, uh, enjoyment of the material versus an experiential gift? So, I mean, oftentimes we'll just ask people, you know, how much <clears throat> how much do you enjoy this gift? How much do you value this gift? Um so most studies have focused on just asking people to self-report how they feel about them. Again, it, without the giver being present to actually, you know. Oh, so I've been doing so, it yeah, wrong yeah, by yeah, like yes. asking people so. Tell <laughs> how me much how do much you, like, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, cuz people totally be honest. I think it's probably why none of us get that feedback that we're terrible gift givers cuz the recipient's never going to admit it to our faces, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's only, you know, like you hear it through the grapevine or, or later you're like maybe they didn't really want that embroidered you know oven mitt set mm. that you know maybe they're really not going to use that all that much especially like clothes for i, I mean yeah. i mentioned brian but it's like it's just such a bad idea because now especially i feel like your significant other i mean sure a lady might uh, like if if she was go if you were walking by a store and she's like that's a, ne- a great necklace okay you go back you get that necklace sure but but for a guy to just like take a whack at like oh i bet that dress <laughs> would look good on her and fit perfectly that's that is a risky strategy yeah it's pretty pretty ballsy uh and and yeah it's, it's gonna be a little tougher to make that one work um so uh, what about what about gift cards? Is that uh, is that a way to kind of clean the filth off of cash before before gifting it to someone? Uh, absolutely. So you know, I do think that most people think that it's more okay to give a gift card than you know the same thing in cash. It it, it feels more thoughtful. It, 
you know, and and actually in, in China, they have a tradition of putting the cash in a red envelope before giving as a gift. And suddenly it goes from being something that's totally crass and inappropriate to give as a gift. And now it's totally OK because it's in the red envelope. Mm. And so part of that is maybe, you know, the the beliefs or rituals we have around these things. Um, but, you know, I. It turns out that gift cards are actually the most requested gift every year. Uh, the National Retail Federation actually cites these statistics. And so even though we might, as givers, have more of a tendency to gravitate toward those tangible items, uh, those those gifts that, you know, again, are much more specific and tailored to the individual, most recipients actually really enjoy having a little more flexibility. I, yeah. It, well, that's interesting. The delivery method. I Here's what I'm here's what I'm doing this Christmas. I'm going to go in for the holidays. Uh, I'm going to have a t-shirt cannon <laughs> filled with dollar bills. I walk in, bam, dollar bills everywhere. Everyone's excited. They're scrambling for I like them. It. It's an experience and, uh, you know, something flexible. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Best of all. So I, I want to get into, uh, maybe we'll uh, get back to some of this stuff and, and tie everything together in this perfect professional way right at the end we'll see i'm optimistic but i i do want to hear just a bit more about just your background generally and and how you got into doing what you're doing and, and more of your main work now absolutely so you know i'm interested in social decision making and so uh, i was trained as a social psychologist and then made my way from that into the area of marketing and i think what really drove me in that direction is that, you know, I'm really interested in these questions around, you know, how do we uh, make decisions with and for other people? So I'm interested in when do we recruit other people to help us make decisions? So when do we ask that salesperson, hey, I'm shopping for a gift for my friend Shane, what do, I, what do you think he might like? You know, what, which of these items is more popular? I'm interested in what are the barriers to actually gauging what somebody else might like and, you know, respond, making a good decision for them? And then how do we support people in making better decisions? So whether that be us advising a friend or whether that be a business or a government trying to support people in, in making better choices. Hmm. Um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm not afraid to ask for help. But what about, what about this situation? You go to a restaurant and I, I do this quite a bit, you know, I, I'm like... I have analysis paralysis and I'm like, <laughs> well, I, I want, do I want this uh, pot pie? I like pot pies, but it's not mini and now I'm kind of like into the mini <laughs> situation or, um, or do I get to the stroganoff? I don't know what restaurant that I'm at. It's a fantastic restaurant that has <laughs> stroganoff and pot pies in my opinion. Um, but, but then you get it, the, I, I mean, I know this isn't related necessarily but i'm always scared that the that the waiter is going to be like well the yellow fish is old i mean one of my favorites <laughs> and try to unload it. it isn't that a concern at some of the you you go to a department store or something like that of them trying to like unload some of their uh stuff that's been collecting dust on a shelf yeah well so certainly by delegating the choice to that salesperson you're putting power in their hands and if their goal is to sort of upsell you on the the nicer bottle of wine or to um, nudge you to buy this dish that they really just need to to get rid of because no one else is ordering it then you're giving them that opportunity to mm -hmm. kind of push those items but I'd venture to say that it also may help you out in that you know rather than sitting there you know like for a half hour 
are kind of going through that menu with the pot pies and the stroganoff and the cheesecake and the, all the whatever. Oh, cheesecake too at oh, this of course, restaurant? It's be, right? Wow, that's great. <laughs> cheesecake Factory is the one that comes to mind. Their <laughs> menu is a book. Oh, it's a God. novel. It's yeah, the worst. It um, I mean, if anybody ha- suffers from analysis, analysis paralysis, that is not where you should go to dinner. Yeah, um, yeah. It, it's, it's so many different options. Um, but yeah, like if you're in that situation, sometimes just having that out, having somebody to whom you can delegate it might save you from sitting there forever uh, before being able to actually make a decision. Just put it in someone else's hands. Plus, it makes their day. I mean, that's why you get into retail sales is for the power. <laughs> Absolutely. 100%. <laughs> um, so so what are the domains that, that, um, that are the most optimal to delegate and when should you take matters into your own hands because my parents have been telling me for a while that I need to start (laughs) growing up and acting more responsibly and and if I could use this your research as an excuse (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah well I mean I think if you have you know a set preference and you know what you want in a particular space I mean I think that's a great time to exercise that autonomy yourself right Mm -hmm. and if you um uh, if other people are not going to know what's best for you compared to what's best for other people, then again, that's a situation where choosing yourself is going to make you better off than somebody who doesn't necessarily know your own personal idiosyncrasies. But um, one, one thing that I find is that a lot of past work in marketing is assumed that most people prefer to make their own decisions, that they really hate it when other people try to to make choices for them or take that choice uh, autonomy away. A lot of my work suggests that actually people find it relieving in many situations to be able to step back and say, you know what, I really don't know what I want to order tonight. You know, which which is better, the the stroganoff or that pot pie? Um, and so for many people, it's a way to kind of alleviate that sense of decision paralysis and actually walk away with something rather than nothing. Yeah. So what about what about a combination of both where you, you know you go in a restaurant and you're like all right here's the ground rules uh less red onions i don't know why they're in everything all the time <laughs> i don't need i don't need to brighten up my instagram pick of my food like but all of a sudden red onions just infiltrating all of my food choices skip the red onions more alfalfa sprouts guys what do you got for me and then you let them uh, kind of guide you from there. It, yeah, sure. You just volley it back and forth a little bit. Uh, mm-hmm. So then you both get some input into the decision. Actually, I mean, one of the things that uh, we usually do when we give people the option to delegate is we start by letting them narrow down that choice set. So you're not letting someone else pick from every option out there for you. You're saying, here are the options I'm considering. Which do you recommend? And actually, as the choice set gets bigger and more overwhelming, the more we might actually prefer to switch roles and let the other person kind of give us a narrower choice set. You know, here's the top three things we recommend off of this novel of a menu. And then you can just sort of say, of those things, I'll, I'll go with this one. Hmm. So... Yeah, there's a a lot of people these days are very um, kind of suspicious of of rightfully so of uh, of, you know, sharing our our privacy on on the Internet and Amazon, knowing everything about us. And like I I mentioned, 
my ear hair on Twitter or something because I'm a over discloser. And, and then like next <laughs> thing I see, there's just like ads for ear hair trimmers and, and things popping up and it's like creepy feeling. But the, but the other side of it is, is that it's like, well, I actually need an ear hair trimmer right, right then and there. And look at that. It's a great price. It's going to be delivered to me in two days. <laughs> Yeah, there's a lot of researchers trying to figure out where that line is between super helpful and super creepy. Um, and, you know, most people are convinced that their phones are listening to them. And, and you know, they've actually, you know, asked this at congressional hearings. Uh, and, and so far, the answer has been been no, that mm. they, they don't possibly have the capacity to, to listen to everything that we're saying. Um, and yet, at the same time, there's this kind of eerie feeling sometimes when, you know, we're, we're seeing the ads pop up on our, our feed that yeah. someone somewhere is is aware of of kind of what we've been thinking about or wanting lately yeah i mean it might be confirmation bias and things sometimes seem like very synchronistic and everything more and more connected than they actually are but i mean i've had i've had like a episode where in particular where someone mentioned this bizarre condition where people have like a really hairy face um <laughs> and uh and like this woman had written a book about about this one family that all had uh this connection uh, this condition written many history books uh, you you need to write a lot of history books until you get to the one where you're gonna write about the family with the hairy faces but um <laughs> but anyway mentioned this mentioned this condition i didn't i hadn't put the episode out it's you know my my recorder here isn't online or anything like that that i know of and then after the podcast a couple hours later i go to check twitter for the first time since that conversation and like the first tweet that pops up is some like hairy faced Oh, wow. That I've really? never seen in my entire life. I mean, come that's on. crazy. Yeah. I, well, I mean, but sometimes it's it's not even direct hints. It's uh, marketers have figured out how to, to draw connections that maybe we ourselves haven't even figured out how to make yet. Like Target is notorious yeah. for having outed a teenage girl who was pregnant yeah. to her family uh, because they just noticed some changes in her purchase history that tip them off you so get they a bigger knew purse, and bigger then you purse get this a colored rug uh yeah and some unscented body lotion i think are, are some of the the key hits there yeah. um you know and again any of those things on their own doesn't necessarily mean anything but together they figured out this means that you know maybe you want some ads for baby cribs yeah and then and then her family's like, why are we getting ads for baby cribs all of a sudden? So, yeah, so yeah. then they, they started putting like lawnmowers and stuff. <laughs> yeah, they to, like, just throw put some the foils scent. in there so that it wasn't quite so obvious. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, very sneaky. Well, that that's the thing with, um, with w when I talk to marketing professors, all the marketing professors that I'm talking to are like, hey, here's a great way. You can make better choices. But <laughs> the thing is, it's like no one uh, other than like me and my listeners and like a handful of other, uh, amongst the general public is ever hearing these. Uh, there, there might be, you know, maybe some people are like buying the book Thinking Fast and Slow or something like that. But that's still such a tiny part of the population. But who is 
looking into all of this stuff is uh, is is the stores and and the companies that want to sell you this. So then they're taking your research and then they're reverse engineering every like here's how you save money and then reverse engineering it to go like here's how we can get people to spend a lot of money irrationally. Absolutely. So. I teach a consumer behavior class and, and you know, I tell my students, you know, understanding how consumers make the decisions that they do and being able to influence those decisions is something of a superpower. But like any superpower wouldn't be a superpower if it couldn't be used for evil as well as for good. And so when I conclude my classes, I always end by by asking the students, encouraging them, make sure that you use this newfound toolkit and knowledge and superpower that you've developed for the purposes of good, not for evil. Mm. But, you know, again, it's a tool. And so people are going to use it, you know, to get you to buy the thing that you really didn't need, but they can also use it to try to solve some of society's bigger problems. So actually, I think that's one of the exciting things about being in marketing is it's very much the psychology of behavior change, uh, which is a tool that we need in order to try to take on some of society's problems. Mm -hmm. Uh, So for me, it's been a really exciting place to be to, to develop that toolkit to be able to start chipping away at some of these things. It is tricky because the general population in in specific situations where they aren't experienced sometimes needs a little nudging and guidance and and, and I'm sure that there's listeners that are like what this is uh, this is you know big brother or something like that kind of talk but um take a comedy show for example if you so so say instead of the sold out show that we had say um say it would have been like a quarter full or something like that. Now, if you just let those quarter full, 200 seat venue, if you just let those like 40, 50 people that are the only ones that show up sit wherever they want, they're all going to want to sit in the back and everything. <laughs> and and now there's this disconnect yeah, between, yeah. between the comedian and the audience. And there's not it's not the same energy. And people just don't, no, you know, they're doing what's intuitive, which is like some people are like, well, I don't want to get picked on. And then <laughs> other people just think it's more comfortable to be sitting further away or whatever. But you have to just tell people or, or in those situations, you block off the back seats and be like, here's your seats. And you seat them yourself because they don't know that it's actually in their interest to all be huddled together in the front because laughter is contagious. And then the comedian is vibing off of it and everything else. And and uh, and so so there's you know that's a that's a small specific example from my w- line of work but but there's larger scale um, social issues and and things that could arguably be similar situations where it's like well uh, people aren't experts on on like mail delivery or whatever <laughs> we need to we need to nudge them a little bit in this direction. They still have a choice, but we need they need a nudge. Absolutely. Well, I mean, you can think about it like architecture. You walk into a house and if it's designed with good architecture, you know, there's there's usually a flow to the rooms and and the the way things fit together and flow together makes sense, right? Mm-hmm. You know, and I think the same thing happens with our choices. You can uh, design good choice architecture to make our choices more intuitive and more um, easy for us to navigate uh, and find what's best for us or find the better option if there is a better option there. And in many cases, there's no 
sort of neutral option, right? If you walk into a cafeteria, some of the food has to go first, some of the food has to go last. There's there's a not there's just that's how the lunch line is set up, right? Yeah, and you, so, can't, you yeah. don't put the dressing on your plate and then move to the salad. <laughs> well, right, and so that would be bad choice architecture if if you've got you know things in a in a hodgepodge as you go down the line. And so you know, as choice architects, I think it's not. You know, as some people fear about mind control and and you know trying to um, you know twist things necessarily. I mean, certainly there might be people out there using this for negative purposes, and that and that's definitely true. But you know, there are things you could do in that cafeteria by putting the the healthy food first if you want to encourage people to make healthy choices, um, or you know as opposed to putting the most expensive food first or the highest margin food first. Um, and so those kinds of choices are ones that I think, you know, we as businesses are making, we as uh, governments are making on behalf of people. And and I think understanding how that works can help us be better designers uh, so that hopefully we're designing things in a way that there's a win-win, but, you know, at least hopefully we're doing it in a more thoughtful, deliberate way. We're not just throwing things out there in a hodgepodge. Yeah, I would like to see, as someone who spends uh, more time on the road than most anyone who isn't a truck driver, uh, I would like to see gas stations that aren't just filled with like everything you see is candy, soda, lottery tickets, cigarettes, booze. It's just like, here's all of the bad choices <laughs> blinking at yeah, you and just yeah. screaming for your attention. I would love to see, a, a, a re- well, once we... Once we clean up the restrooms, first and form, first order of business, <laughs> um, uh, that that's like a little more of like uh, here's some uh, uh, almost like a, a mini like Whole Foods or something like that, and and I guess it's the case that I I think that there would be a market for a gas station that's just like <laughs> hey this is for a bunch of snobs like you can yeah. come in here it keeps out the riffraff you don't need the the thing full of bumper stickers um, uh, uh, that that's just like a display of the worst of the human condition. And why is every truck stop like that? Why why isn't there a nice one where you go in, you spend a little extra? And anyway, I'm, I'm going to go on a tangent, but related, um, something like a grocery store is a is a better example where I've, I've, I my understanding of some of the choice architecture is they're having you go through the produce section first. You feel great about getting some apples and then, and then you move on to the cereal aisle afterwards and well, I got five apples. So now I can (laughs) get the frosted this and that. And, and then maybe you resist that, but then you get to the end and there's just like the trash magazines and candy and stuff and it's just too and you don't have the capacity anymore to uh it, you you have to know what brad pitt is up to and get a <laughs> snickers bar uh, you know you just can't help yourself and then you walk out ashamed with those with those <laughs> with those choices is it, and i don't see that changing in any way i know this is turning into a very long monologue but i don't i don't see that if 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 you're working in a system where you're like obsessed at the bottom line, I get that from the owner of the grocery store's point of view. I mean, this is, that's the choice you make. It's a kind of a smart choice to make from that one person's point of view. But at what point is it okay for like 
the government to step in or something to have policies where it's like, no, you can't, you have to have, you have to have the kids cereal at like the top shelf. So they, they can't grab your, your little, uh, uh, um, you know, little monkeys that can't help themselves. Aren't, aren't like crying and throwing fits every time, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, People are going to be using this choice architecture to try to sell you more of the trashy magazines, but, you know, other people might be using it to try to encourage healthier eating. And because it's such a powerful influence, actually, you know, there's been a lot of concerns about, like, what what should we do, you know, on a policy level of actually protecting people from those nudges that are designed to nudge them towards something that's maybe not in the consumer's best interest. And so one of the things that's been advocated quite a bit is, well, let's just tell people how these nudges or how this choice architecture has been designed to you know, encourage them to choose these vices. And then consumers can make an informed decision uh, for themselves about what's best for them. And uh, so I, I thought that was an interesting idea that I was really skeptical of. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I actually set out to look to see, does just telling people that these influences are out there <laughs> make people any less susceptible to their influence? And as it turns out, no. Telling oh, people my God. how I... defaults are, are intended to affect people's behavior. So a default might be something like, you know, I've... Um, pre-checked this box in this email I sent you such that you agree unless you uncheck it to subscribe to all of my other emails that I'm going to be sending out. Um, And so that's a way that I've kind of set up choice architecture or default such that Mm -hmm. you will receive the emails by default unless you actively opt out. The alternative would be I make you actively check a box to opt in to receive that. So this is is a very powerful influence. Uh, We find that telling people what the default is and how that's designed to influence their behavior doesn't make them any less influenced by that default. Um, They might actually form judgments about the person who kind of warned them about it. They might trust you more if you were honest, like, yeah, I included this here to kind of make you more likely to sign up for this subscription list. Uh, But again, it doesn't protect them in the way that I think policymakers kind of hoped that it would. Mm. Uh, And so if anything, if you really want to try to protect consumers from being uh, influenced or manipulated by these kinds of more nefarious nudges, you really got to try to target why they're effective in the first place. And and part of that has to do with the way they change the way that we think about those choices. It leads us to focus on reasons to choose that default option first and foremost, and then only later do we actually consider why we might have preferred the alternative. Hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, I have a very, I have a distinct memory because often people are like, hey, you talk with scientists, you learn all this stuff. Why do you still make such horrible choices all of the <laughs> right. time? These people are my parents and other people that care about me. Uh, but I, I mean, I distinctly remember, I think it was, um, I know it was a Dan Ariely book. I, I think it was, um, um, what is it rationally predictably irrational irrational. i I believe that's the one that i was listening to an audiobook and i mean it was just talking about like i don't know candy at the grocery store or something like that and i stopped to use the restroom (laughs) and i'm just like don't do it shane don't buy candy (laughs) don't do it and i walked out of that gas station with more candy than i'd bought in some time uh so so it's like (laughs) I I don't know. It seems 
a lot of times it's not enough just to be aware of how these things are influencing us to to be able to buffer ourselves against those influences. Sometimes it only just gives us the greater insight to recognize, oh, yeah, that was in a situation and I totally fell for it again. Hmm. So let's say that there's individuals out there. I imagine I have lots of very bright podcast listeners that tune in for things just like we're talking about to become more aware and so so someone wants to be like a, a consumer ninja they don't they don't want to <laughs> they don't want to fall for all of these tricks they just want to make the best consumption choices all of the time what can they do <laughs> uh, i wish i could answer seconds. that Go. question for you <laughs> Uh, yeah, it's it's actually funny. You know, our field has made a lot of strides in identifying some of the ways in which we make predictably irrational decisions. Mm. And it's made uh, far fewer strides in figuring out how to get us out of that mess. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I don't think there's a short answer, unfortunately, for you on that one. All right, everybody. It's So the message for this podcast <laughs> is give up. There's no hope for any of us. <laughs> <laughs> That's the message of every uh, episode, usually. Um, so, it, are there other countries where they're implementing more um, consumer policy to kind of help nudge people in the right direction? And have they seen any, or or even even just different states, different policies, and and has there been anything that actually does work? So one really exciting movement that's happening in governments right now is that more and more countries, states, and even cities are building behavioral insights teams to help inform the people designing policies such that they're actually informed by how humans make decisions. And it it seems like such an obvious thing, but yet it's such an oversight. You know, like they design these policies for the, the perfect robot that never misses deadlines and fills out the form exactly right, even though, you know, you, you need three PhDs to be able to understand what they're asking. And uh, and so a lot of these governments are building these teams to help figure out how do we use the best of what we know about how people make decisions in order to design more effective and user-friendly government policies. So I actually had the opportunity to serve in the United States um Office of Evaluation Sciences, which is based at the General Services Administration. I also worked on the White House Social and Behavioral Sciences team under President Obama. And in those roles, what we did is we looked at uh, different challenges that our government agencies were facing and trying to uh, design and administer policies uh, to try to support the American people. And and what we would do is we would come in and try to figure out what are the behavioral barriers to why this program isn't working as effectively as it could? How can we design an intervention to try to overcome those barriers and then rigorously test it to see what works and what works best? So as an example, you know, People in our military have the opportunity to sign up for thrift savings plans to save for their retirement. But unlike uh, in many organizations where you're sort of uh, enrolled into these plans automatically by default, unless you choose to opt out, uh, our uh, service members were actually having to actively opt in if they wanted to be a part of these plans. And what we know from behavioral science is that people often don't take that step, as small as it seems, to kind of actively sign up when when that's the the choice architecture. And so one thing that we did is we worked with them to make it at least uh, an active choice um, rather than an opt-in choice. And what that means is instead of having to kind of 
fill out a form only if you want to join the plan, you are explicitly asked during your um, uh, HR kind of orientation to make an explicit choice, yes or no, I want to be part of the thrift savings plan. And even making that small tweak made it such that people were much more likely to sign up for these plans that could improve their retirement security. And in fact, it worked so well that uh, the military decided to go ahead and just switch that to an opt-out choice architecture eventually. So again, encouraging more people to not fall through the cracks and fail to save for their retirement um, by kind of making that the easy option, making that the default option. Hmm. Are there domains in which, <laughs> this is going to sound like a ridiculous question, but there certainly, there has to be some consumer domains in which being better informed <laughs> does help you <laughs> in some way. You can't think of any. <laughs> you, 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 you study consumer behavior to inform people. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny. You know, one thing that I find is that um, where it can be helpful to get additional information is when we're trying to predict someone else's preferences. A lot of times when we're doing that, what we do is we try to imagine what that person might be thinking or, or how we would feel if we were them, right? And so we engage in this thought exercise. And oftentimes that thought exercise is not terribly helpful. Um, so this is what we call perspective taking. Um, so, you know, I'm imagining what you might like as a gift. You know, I imagine what I as Shane might, might like as a gift. Um, you know, what, what, things you enjoy, what things you don't enjoy. Uh, and Thank you. That's very thoughtful of you, by the way. Oh, you're welcome. You're welcome. But the problem with that is that, you know, there's going to be gaps in my knowledge and understanding. And, you know, the more I engage in that practice, you know, I'm not necessarily going to gain any insight that I didn't already have. So, mm. so encouraging people to take other people's perspectives, while it sounds like great advice, um, we actually find is, is not terribly good advice after all. W what it does is it makes you way more confident or makes me way more confident confident in my predictions of what I think you want. Um, I really put the thought into this. <laughs> right? But um, in reality, it actually doesn't make me any more accurate. If anything, it makes me less accurate at gauging what you want. Um, and so what we find is that it's actually not getting people to rely more on you know, what they what information they already have about someone else. It's getting new information about that person. That's what really helps. And so we, we call this perspective getting. If I really want to get you a good gift, I should just get your perspective. I should ask you what you might like. And and surprise, I'm going to do a much better job. This sounds really obvious I, I you know when I say this. And yet, we actually randomly assign people in a study to either kind of come up with um, an estimate of, of how much their partner would like a series of activities uh, just on their own. We ask them to kind of take their partner's perspective and imagine what that person might like. And then we asked them to uh, perspective get, ask that person about their preferences on all these different items and then make those predictions. What was really funny is that those who did the perspective getting didn't think they were any more accurate. And yet they were the only ones that got a boost in accuracy. Hmm. Hmm. That, yeah, that's very interesting. So... So, so how do you how do you prime that in a social situation in, in like an everyday kind of situation, not in a lab setting? Well, if you're if you're not sure what your significant other might like for the upcoming holidays, you know, just ask. 
and so just prompting people to to think of that as an option and take that step uh, can actually make a big difference in terms of your ability to to figure it out. And then come that celebration, you go, oh, remember when you said, <laughs> you don't need to worry about getting me anything. Uh, well, I, I didn't get you anything. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then I'm sure they go, Thank you for getting me exactly <laughs> what, I, what I asked for. Yeah, strategy is going to work a lot better if people are in a situation where they feel like they can be honest mm-hmm. with you about it. And and yeah, so so that's going to be a little tricky if they if they feel like they have to play it humble or play it cool and and not really say what they truly want. Oh man, I got to stop putting so much pressure on myself to be so cool all the time. <laughs> Um, I have my one cool thing I do. I have my guests each week plug a, a nonprofit of their choice. Did you have one in mind? Yes. Um, so the Make-A-Wish Foundation, this foundation grants the wishes of kids with uh, critical illnesses. And so, you know, they're an organization that has meant a lot to me over the years. And, and so I encourage other folks to, to give to that organization. Mm, and that is fantastic. And what do you have... Uh, whatever you're um, comfortable sharing, but what do you have in the works? Right, what have you been thinking about that you you want to explore, or you or you maybe just started, but you haven't um, started studying yet, or you're looking forward to doing in the future? So, I've gotten really excited lately about better understanding how we make decisions with other people. Mm -hmm. Um, There hasn't been a lot of work on when we delegate decisions to other people. And and so I'm really interested in in going a little bit further than that. You know, what are the dynamics of the back and forth between uh, individuals and how does that impact how excited they are about what they ultimately choose, how much ownership they feel over the decision, how well they feel like they've been treated by the other person. Um, But really understanding at a more nuanced level, what kind of role do people want to play in shaping the decisions that they face and, and what kind of support do they want from other people in navigating those decisions as well? Hmm. Uh, what, what about, um, have you looked into kind of in group settings when you have more than just a one-on-one back and forth, but when you're, uh, I don't know, like, hey, hey, family, what are, <laughs> what are we going to get for for this person when you have multiple people working on it? Oh, that's an interesting question. I, I haven't navigated that one as much. And so that's, that's, okay. that's again, sort of an area where we might have more of a black box. I thought you were going to say something along the lines of when you're making choices um, for many people at once, one of the things we find is that people find those choices especially daunting, uh, more so than choices for one other person or, or for just a choice for themselves. And so these are the decisions that we're especially likely to pass the buck on. We'd rather kind of point at someone else in case that decision should prove to be unpopular. Mm. Uh, we just want to avoid that possible responsibility or blame associated with like choosing a dud option for, for somebody else. Okay, so you go to your significant other, you go, here, your friend thought this would be a, <laughs> a good idea for you. And what about, has there ever been, I'm going to put you on the spot again with, with something you probably haven't researched, white elephant gift exchanges. Has there ever been any studies on, on, on these in any, I, I don't know what you would study or what you would be hoping to gain out of them. Are they fun? Do we like them? I can't tell. I've pretty much only done them um, with with uh, with my family. And I'm like, oh, okay, this is like, I, I guess it's a fun 
it's a very social i mean that is i will say that it makes the um the gift giving or like the material thing take a little bit more of a background and it is more of a experiential it's more of an activity people are telling jokes and stuff like that is that um i wonder how that does against just your traditional where everyone everyone draws the secret santa and everyone has one person in mind I, and exchanges that way. I, I wonder which one people walk away happier from. That's a really good question. To my knowledge, I don't know of any work that's looked at sort of these white elephant or gag gifts. Um, these ones really seem to be much more about sort of the reaction that you get from the recipient, you know, like the laugh or, you know, the the sense of camaraderie that might come from, um, you know, belly or belly laughing over this, you know, how ridiculous this item is. Like I, I was in one once where somebody gave this thematic set of holiday sodas that were like green bean casserole flavored soda. And and I remember all of us having a lot of fun, like drinking all of those terrible, terrible sodas yeah, and gagging belly. over it, right? Jelly Belly <laughs> took took that and ran with it. Oh, are, did are, they really? Are you familiar? Oh, it's it's pretty... I mean, it's kind of great and awful at the same time, but they have, uh, it's like, you know, there'll be eight different colors or whatever. <laughs> and within that, it'll be like, um, it, it'll be like one, uh, one will be like coconut flavored and, and another one that looks identical will be rotten egg flavor. <laughs> and you take a, it's like a Russian roulette style, like you spin a wheel and you have, <laughs> And they nailed all those That's disgusting. Yes. Yeah, they made. I don't know who taste tested the puke flavor, but they <laughs> knocked it out of the park. Um, uh, well, what would you say is because as people are listening, they are they really are approaching um, some of these uh, big sales, and and there's especially the online stuff. Is, is there? Is there much difference between going to the store, going to the waiting in line for the Black Friday or um, or doing that online thing? Is there do people make better choices on one or the other? That's a great question. I don't know if they make better choices on one or the other. I imagine that as a as a giver, you probably feel more thoughtful if you took more time to do your gift shopping or actually had to like physically leave the house in order to do it. Uh, but interestingly, your recipients... I think I'd get mad sometimes. <laughs> like you slept in a tent <laughs> for this? <laughs> yeah, yeah, but the thing is, the recipient rarely knows oh, or has that insight into what you did to acquire the gift, right? They just see the end result. And so oftentimes, you know, as a giver, we overweight how important these things are. Maybe just going online and ordering everything from the convenience of our living room in our pajamas is going to be just as appreciated by recipients as kind of, ten, you know, sitting in a tent at Best Buy at three in the morning uh, on, on Thanksgiving. I'm going for like, this is a, here's a fun strategy. I wonder if I'm going to get some laughs. laughs. What I'm going to do, and I, and I got to do it, uh, like I'm actually going to do it. You wait in line, you camp out for hours, and then you get people the worst gifts possible <laughs> that you tell them that you camped out for that. So they're just like confused. Like, you're, <laughs> like hey, here, I got you. I, I waited in line for four days, and I got you this stack 
of blank CDs <laughs> so you can burn CDs now. They're like, you did what? That's, that's going to be my strategy. Uh, you know, it, it, when you give a terrible gift, uh, if you can say or show that you put a lot of thought into it, it can serve as a good buffer uh, as a giver. You know, we, we think that the thought counts more than actually does. And mm-hmm. and oftentimes that's when it comes to a good gift. If, if it's a good gift, the recipient likes it. They don't really care if you thought about it or not. But when you give that terrible gift, they know you camped out. You know, they're still going to give you some credit for, for trying. Mm. What about some of the online um, spending stuff? Do you have any tips for people in terms of i i know it's just getting easier and easier these days with all the pop-up ads with the ease of delivery even even me having to fit all of my belongings in the vehicle i still like buy too many like cords and things (laughs) like that that i that i tell myself i need for the show or whatever and i make a, a lot of impulsive uh, choices. Are there anything, uh, any any tips for people av- avoiding some of their, uh, what would, I guess, shopping addiction or just impulsive spending for the average person? Yeah, well, so there is some research on sort of the pain of pain for things where, you know, it's, it's more painful to depart with cash than to just put it on a credit card. And mm. so people end up overspending more when they're using a credit card for purchases rather than spending with cash. And I imagine you might see sort of that analogy with, you know, sitting in your living room and pointing and clicking on a bunch of stuff as opposed to having to go out and schlep around town in order to buy things. So I imagine like the 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 easier it is and the the less visible or painful it is to kind of make each of those purchases, probably the more likely you are to kind of keep spending and keep going. Hmm. So walk around with cash in your wallet during the, during the holidays and pay for things that way. It's actually solid. That is pretty solid advice. It does. It definitely <laughs> does having to count the money. And oh everything yeah. And, yeah. It's much more real that way. Yeah. Um. All right. Well, uh, Mary Steffel, you were absolutely fantastic, both here and on Stand Up Science. So I thank you very much for being a part of both shows. And good luck to you and all the work you're doing. And thank you, listeners, for being such a wonderful, curious audience. And I'll talk with you more next week. Next week on the Here We Are podcast, Amy Schmid, for real this time. We just bumped her back a week so we could have a timely holiday episode, but it's fantastic. It's super interesting stuff. We're talking about new lines in our evolutionary past that have been discovered and had to be, we've had to rethink things. And you get to hear all about the little creatures that made that happen super cool episode and if you guys are looking for gift ideas you know another person i forgot to thank early on i work with as i have head talks coming up in lincoln wichita oklahoma city dallas and austin please don't miss out on these shows i think they're probably all gonna sell out um the uh, amazing um brilliant articulate wise Sophia Rockland uh, will be joining me for those shows and doing the book signing of her 
book one plant stream afterwards but um, we're gonna have a whole bunch of merch and f you guys if you saw the good trip tour you knew i had some fun merch we're we're doing uh <laughs> i i know it's merch might not sound interesting but we're gonna have some surprises in store i think we're gonna blow some minds and one of the things that happened was my last tour i had these lovely uh, leather keychains with mushrooms or LSD molecule, DMT molecule, that sort of thing. Having some ayahuasca ones made for uh, for this tour with a lovely little ayahuasca root stamp and the DMT molecule on them. And uh, that's done by Lost Sailor Design. You may notice an acronym there, Lost Sailor Design. Amazing leather workers. Uh, they uh, came out and saw uh, one of my psychedelic shows years ago. Uh, they ended up gifting me a Here We Are leather wallet. I need to put a picture of this on Instagram or something. Please follow me on Instagram, by the way. I started... I started um, uh, doing stuff with it recently. I've been avoiding social media for the last year or so and um, getting back into it. Uh, the stuff I'm doing is just too important and I, I have to do all the marketing efforts and everything else that I can. And so I reluctantly joined Instagram. It's been more fun than I thought it would be. I, I, I quite like it right now. Uh, we'll, we'll see how my how my self-control issues go along with it. But so far, so good. But Jared at Lost Sailor, then I, I asked them if they could make these keychains for the tour. Since then, we've been doing business together for a while. He makes the most amazing stuff. Find me a better leather worker. There, there isn't one. He's incredible. I uh, got my um, my ex, uh, when, when we were together, I got her the most amazing purse you have ever seen. And I... Also, I've gotten people notebooks as gifts. There's a bunch of stuff like that that I highly recommend. Make great, unique Christmas gifts, especially for the artsy, creative types in uh, in your area. And and if you are looking for a DMT molecule keychain or something, uh, they're only they're exclusive to me. Only available at my shows but everything else you can get at lost sailor design um so so do check them out and i hope to see you guys at head talks i am very very excited if these shows sell out we're gonna add more shows either do bigger venues or do two shows do them two nights in a row i'm still figuring that out and all of it will depend on this first little test run so uh, make sure and spread the word as much as you can, please. Thanks for five years of uh, listening to this podcast that brings me so much joy in my life. You guys are the best. Those of you that listen all the way to the end, you are, of course, my favorites.
Podcast. <clears throat> a podcast network.